Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. planners we don't always talk about early on in our career that it's not about showing up and like doing the textbook version of your job but how do you like engage in a place and learn the players and what they care about and managing stakeholder expectations and trying to find like these win-win solutions for everybody and something some of my friends and I say sometimes like how do we get to yes like how do we get to a place where everyone feels like the decision we're making like yes there will be some compromises but everyone feels like the, what we're doing is is equitable it's environmental sound and is like economically sustainable. Kelsey's understanding of the role at place, where we live, work, and play, stems from her multidisciplinary background education in environmental science and masters of community regional planning. She currently practices at Cameron McCarthy Landscape Architecture and Planning in Oregon with expertise in land use and parks and recreation planning, along with consulting for public sector clients. Kelsey serves as the chair of, of the City of Eugenie's Sustainability Commission to help craft innovative environmental policy recommendations to City Council. She was recently appointed to the Middle Housing Model Code Technical Advisory Committee for the Oregon Department of Land Conservation and Development, an entity developing landmark statewide housing code that enables increased housing density in single-family lots, the first of its kind in the United States. We hope you enjoy listening and hear from you soon. Kelsey, how do you see urban planning as a component of addressing climate change in the SDGs? Yeah, I would say I think about this a lot. And I think I was thinking about it a lot, even when we were in Unleash. And I think a big part of urban planning that I find very interesting and like something that I know my colleagues around Oregon have said to me before. And so I certainly haven't been the person to invent it. But this idea of like land use action is climate action. And that I think how we structure human settlements and how we look at how we're developing space is crucial in terms of to get more into like planning theory, looking at the way, how dense are our neighborhoods? How are we structuring where we develop around transit and making it possible for people to not be super car dependent, making it possible for people to get everywhere they want to go? Again, with transit, with bicycle, being able to walk is really important. And then I think going back to like food deserts, right? Like thinking through like, how are we structuring developments around people having access to food and water and all of those things? And so I don't know, I I guess, um, you know, I think we all tend to think that whatever we're working on is the most important, right? But I do really think that urban planning and land use especially kind of is the, is the foundation on which our lives are built, knowingly or unknowingly. And I think, um, and that's, that's an issue also of access and privilege and equity and there's so many studies right around where you grow up and how that determines um, the amount of money you're able to make as you grow older the your overall health that's like a huge component as well so really where you live and where you grow up and and where you spend the most of your time is a big determinant of your quality of life and so as we're thinking through how that pertains to climate change I think there's a future that we're going to have to start looking at that is you know more dense and how are we reducing 
increasing sprawl? How are we getting smarter about our resource distribution? Again, whether that's transit, food, all of those things, but kind of making it possible for those types of communities to develop and be possible and for people to not be priced out of them as well. I think it's a really important consideration. And then again, in terms of like the SDGs broadly, pretty much everything I just talked about inadvertently touches on pretty much every SDG, whether we're talking about access to education, we're talking about clean water, we're talking about waste reduction, just like gender equality, like so many, so many of the SDGs, I think really do come into planning, which I I think is really important and really interesting. I love it. And, and I'm a, a fellow geography nerd and, and love all things urban planning. And, and even looking at the comparison of different cities over time, whether it's looking at Beijing or whether it's looking at Brussels or New York and like how cities are set up for success. And you see some of these cities, like let's say Nordic countries where they have, they've built around the ability to use bikes and trains, you know, maybe better than others. And, and I love your description of like, it does touch on everything because land use and land setup is a framework for everything. And, and it's, it ties into all these other topics. And so, you know, kind of within that, one thing I'm super interested in within this discussion is public space. And, and I know that it's, you know, people maybe look at parks and they look at just kind of green space as something that they might take for granted, but you know, how does um, public space and green space tie into kind of the, the overarching discussion of SDGs, whether it's you know building ecosystems within urban areas or also having like place for enjoyment? You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And I think we're talking about it in an especially interesting time because I think my response two weeks ago would be very different um, than my response right now, given just our uh, global state of health crisis. So initially, my gut reaction is public space is so critical for many reasons, um, socially, mental health, physical health. And, and again, it's been the bedrock of so many societies, whether you know we're talking Italy hundreds of years ago with you know the big open kind of plazas and all that stuff and looking at like the concepts of town squares in early America like these have been foundational places in cultures and like in ancient Rome right so public space has always been a really critical part of just I think what I what I perceive as like democratic dialogue and getting getting all walks of life into these spaces and something I was recently reading a book Palaces for the People by Eric Kleinenberg and I saw him um, speak at South by Southwest last year and he just has a great bit about how public space is like truly one of the like last remaining components of our society that's completely free and accessible to anyone regardless of who you are and how especially now as we've moved towards you know a very capitalist society everything requires a subscription or you pay to enter or there's a membership public space is one of the few places we don't need that and that's because um, it was founded I think on this mentality of how do we get how do we get everyone together in a single location? So from that perspective, I think it's incredibly important in terms of my work, in terms of like creating community and creating places where we can still interact with people who are completely unlike ourselves and just how important that is in our politically divided climate. But yeah, I, I also think this week I've been thinking a lot about that too. And Frankly, I'm kind of already grieving a little bit what I think is going to be a, a tough but possible rebuild in terms of the cultural
culture around public space and around transit and around density and around these things, these elements of planning that like are so crucial to, to creating a more sustainable world truly. And yet here we are in the middle of a pandemic situation where it's going to be, you know, like a, a lot of, a lot of us living through this period are going to have some trauma around being in these spaces and being around large groups of people. And pretty much like everything we're hearing right now is going against everything that planning theory has been suggesting we do in some, or like, you know, like has been supporting. And so, and not to say we won't get to a place where we can do all those things again, because we absolutely will. But like, there's a culture of fear around, around a lot of those things right now which I find really unfortunate. But I would also say the flip side of that is for everyone who is not completely isolating at home, public space and parks in green space, if, if people are anything like me, that's what's keeping us all sane right now also, right? Like the fact that if you're able to leave your house and take a walk, you can walk your dog, and you can take your kids out and play, like those community resources are kind of what are keeping, I think, a lot of communities afloat right now, mentally and physically and making sure again that people have access to those spaces I think is going to be crucial I mean it's always been crucial but I think it's going to be even more crucial as we yeah approach these times where it feels like you know you can't be in large gathering spaces but where can you still meet people that's not in your home yeah Um, I think that's we're in a really interesting point at that on that issue right now absolutely I mean I did the same thing last night where I've been quarantined which seems to be a a word of 2020, uh, and, and took my dog out on a walk in a, in a park in Chicago. And it, it really kind of just brought me some peace and serenity into the other word of 2020 that is, is already just annoying me is social distancing. But you know, mm-hmm. this, the aspect of a lot of what we're talking about urban planning is, is how to maximize people being together within an urban framework. Cause I know there are there are a lot of infrastructure and living benefits to be in the urban environment. You know, we, I think now it was just a year or two ago when more than half the world's population now lives in urban environments compared to rural environments. And, and so that's a good thing. And, and obviously there's these risks of, of everything with the pandemic. But pandemic aside, I think diving back into the urban planning discussion, I'm interested in your opinion as it pertains to just planning how can from and maybe this is a multifaceted question between federal, state, and local, but how do you go about planning the best city when you're balancing housing, you're balancing infrastructure, transport, you're balancing, you know, like access to food? Like, is there a hierarchy of priorities? And then like, you know, like and I know politics have to play a role in that, like just like how how does one even begin to understand that and like and what should people be thinking about uh, when it pertains to that balance? That is a great question, and if I had the perfect answer to that, I'm sure I would be a millionaire. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a great question, and I think that's okay. part of why this work, at least to me personally, is so fascinating. Is you're constantly juggling a million different elements, and you know, making trying to make informed decisions. Um, and in terms of a hierarchy, I would say. No. And just in my professional practice, I would say no. And that's because every time you're looking at a city or you enter into a community or you just enter into a space that is not yours, 
there's different priorities for every community, right? Or it's just based on kind of what are the sociopolitical demographics of the place you are entering into. So oftentimes, a one size fits all framework is not appropriate. But I would say there's like big, big elements that are that are critical. And that's, um, again, going back to the, the idea of transit, making sure transit is affordable and accessible to a lot of people, making sure housing is like a huge issue, at least in the United States right now. Um, affordable housing is a huge deal. And looking at we creating these new housing options, essentially housing stock for a different generation of people. You know, people aren't after mansions per se anymore um, and want to live small, want to live more efficiently. And frankly, in the United States, we just haven't really prioritized that type of stock in the past. And so that's like a big, a big issue that's coming down. And again, I would argue housing is a similar in the same, same way that I was saying that land use is foundational. Housing is foundational. If you don't have a place to live, it's essentially impossible to commit to an education, to, you know, have a job and, and feel confident every day going into that job. And so housing is a, is a really big one. But I would say balancing, balancing the politics is also is also a big component and looking at um, state legislature, looking at local legislature, I would say after doing this work, I, I didn't realize, or now since I've done this work, I didn't realize how important it has been to truly pay attention to your city council and like understand um, the political leanings of the people on your city council, because that truly does dictate how far you move ahead on critical issues. And so again, whether that means enabling different types of housing stock, whether that means funding for transit, all that stuff goes through your city council and, um, or whatever your like local governing body is. So paying attention to that is really critical. And I think that's something that is sometimes missing from early urban planning curriculum is, you know, you learn the theory, you learn like why density is important. You learn the climate impacts of like managing growth and all of these things. But there's a huge political component to our work that I think for a long time, there was a theory in planning that like, if you're a planner, like working a planning counter for like a city, you should be apolitical, which in that case, sure, because you are, you know, approving permits and all that stuff. And it's based on specific like legal criteria. But um, at least in my work, and I'm in private planning, I think planning is always political. Like as soon as you come into a community and you're making decisions that impact people's lives, that will always become political. And so learning how to engage in the political process or, or learn and understand the political process and kind of balance balance all of that is is really important and something I, I think as planners we don't always talk about early on in our career that it's not about showing up and like doing the textbook version of your job but how do you like engage in a place and learn the players and what they care about and managing stakeholder expectations and trying to find like these win-win solutions for everybody and something some of my friends and I say sometimes is like how do we get to yes like how do we get to a place where everyone feels like the decision we're making like yes there will be some compromises but everyone feels like the, what we're doing is is equitable, is environmentally sound, and is like economically sustainable. Wow, well put. Uh, it, it, there's so many different dynamics you need to balance, and, and you talked about how whenever you're dealing with people, and especially displacing of you know, choosing what they're, you're going to do with place. I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm not being political, and I don't want to get political," but it's like. You are, you have to, you can't try and say that you're not, because if you're trying to do affordable housing, well, that's impacting people. Maybe you want to help, but it's also, you know, impacting maybe a, a business that might also want to do that. So as a city planner, you have to balance that. And I, and I can, I can respect that dynamic. 
you know, so I guess within your framework of what you're doing right now, do you have a specific case study that you're doing, uh, like as it pertains to housing or, or public space or transit that kind of ties into this city planning discussion? Great question. Um, yeah, I'm working on, so the state of Oregon recently passed House Bill 2001, which is a landmark piece of legislation for the country, actually, because it's the first like statewide version. So House Bill 2001 is made up of a lot of components, but one big component of it is, so overall it's a housing bill, but um, the component that I'm working on specifically or helping work on is this idea of allowing. So in every, in every city in Oregon, there's zoning, right? As is true in many cities across America. And so typically in zoning, um, you have like single family residential, or you have different, different tiers of residential um, zoning. So you can have um, commercial, you can have multifamily, you can have all these different types of zoning that allows different amounts of housing. And so what Oregon is doing is within, they are pretty much saying for the entire state that for any zone for communities over a specific size, so this is mostly for larger communities, but for any communities over a specific size that has had um, single family zoning, we're now trying to enable outright those or like lots within that zone to enable multiple units on a lot. And so essentially what that's saying is like, if you own a piece of property right now that has a single family home on it in Oregon, and again, you meet the criteria of a specific size of a community, um, you could be permitted outright to establish like a duplex on that lot. And so in previous cases, this has been like, if it's a single family zone, you can only have a single family home on that lot. So essentially what we're doing is we're enabling a pretty significant increase in density in residential zones. So it's like not an apartment building, right? But it's what we're calling, or the term has been missing middle housing. So we're enabling housing, different housing stock or different housing types. Again, that isn't like a massive apartment complex, but it isn't a single family home. So it's a duplex, it's an accessory dwelling unit or granny flat, an ADU. It's like, you know, those backyard units, but figuring out ways to increase residential density. And so that's being done on the part of DLCD, which is our department of so I'm going to thank you, Department of Land Conservation and Development. Oh my gosh, my friends would kill me for not knowing that. So it's through DLCD, so it's through the state for Oregon. So the House bill passed like around last year. And so DLCD called together a group of people from across the state who are professionals practicing in the housing space or practicing in code, essentially land use code. And so I'm filling the market rate renter seat on one of the subcommittees within this group. And so that subcommittee is directly looking at how do we write model code for cities to implement to do this work. And so... Again, there are cities across the United States that have done this. So like Minneapolis is an excellent example. However, Oregon is the first state to say this is going to apply to all the cities in our state. And again, we're hoping this is going to alleviate the housing crisis or the housing crunch and like improve housing affordability because we're just creating um, smaller units for people who, again, like don't need to buy a single family home or don't want to buy a single family home. And in addition, we're hoping, right, like as you as you increase density, you're increasing access to transit, you're increasing people's access to grocery stores, um, you're just reducing sprawl. And so that's kind of a big case study happening in Oregon right now that I think all of us are excited about and really interested to see how that moves forward, just because that could have drastic impacts again on, on human settlements in a way that we, we haven't really looked at using this tool statewide before. That's really cool. And that 
I, I, my parents own property in Wisconsin and, and they've gone through different aspects of, of remodeling their home. And, and I know that just, I've learned a lot about zoning codes and language mm-hmm. and it's, mm-hmm. what you're talking about seems to be such an interesting discussion around the verbiage in zoning codes and what it can and can not allow you to do. And I think this is really pertinent to the SDG community because it ties into how code and how verbiage enables something like access to housing and access to affordable housing. And that's something that people may not think about, but where zoning and codes ties into planning is it ties into so many other SDGs that we're talking about. So I, I appreciate that context. And, you know, as, as you being someone that's, um, that knows a lot about this discussion of urban planning, I'm interested as well as do you have a favorite city or kind of example of a, a city design, you know, whether it's uh, somewhere domestic in the United States or international around the world, is there a city that sticks out or there could be more than one of like, wow, this city is designed well for humans to live? Oh, that's a great question. My wheels were spinning as you were talking. I would say actually, interestingly, one of the first things that came to mind as you were asking that was like, I think for me personally, a hallmark of like a good quote unquote good place is a place where, you know, if I'm traveling there, I can show up and then I can go through a whole long weekend, even a week. And I don't even get in a car. And that's either because there's bike options, there's a train, there's public transit. And so from that perspective, I was just thinking one place that I was really impressed with that I went a few years ago um, when I was in Vancouver, BC, Vancouver was really amazing where, you know, I was with a friend and we pulled up in our car, parked the car as soon as we got there and then didn't get in the car until we went home like three or four days later. And that was, um, it was super walkable. Um, It was possible to get to grocery stores. We took like a bus out to the university to see some museums. Um, transit was very clean and easy to understand. It was easy to navigate. So I think of I think of that as a really good example. And again, places where people are also out walking with you, um, where it feels like a populous place. And um, in that sense too, actually, yeah, after Unleash, I spent some time in Hong Kong and I was really surprised at myself, I think, that it was such a, it's such a dense city and place. I think I was a little nervous, like walking around alone um like how am I going to feel and it was like one of the safest places I've been in I felt like because there are so many the concept of like eyes on the street right that their development is so dense that it feels like there's just so many people around constantly that you don't feel exposed and I think that's another element also this idea that when you're when you're out in public you know, you want to be able to see other people and you want to feel like other people are seeing you um, because that contributes to, I think, a culture of safety and a culture of feeling like it's okay to be out in public and to be doing your business and all that stuff. So Vancouver and Hong Kong, I think, are excellent places for that. But I mean, there's there's so many cities in the United States as well that are developing really cool um, transit options and making it possible for people to live those types of lifestyles. But again, I, I and I should have underscored this earlier, but this is all supposed you're someone who likes that lifestyle, right? There's a lot of rural communities, especially in the United States, um, that like aren't interested in aren't interested in those lifestyles. And I think that gets back to a previous your previous question about how do you balance these things and every community being different? Because at a certain point, you can't impose some of these structures on communities that like that is just not their way of life. And like, how do we how do we reconcile those differences? Um, I think is a question that comes up for me a lot too. 
Well put. And, and just if I had to throw my little two cents on that, my, that question, I would say actually Amsterdam is one that impresses me. And I oh, love, yeah. and part of it is because I just love seeing how they have like the intertwined nature of dedicated bike lanes. And then you've got the tram running in the middle where buses also mm-hmm. can go. So it's very good for buses and trams and bikes. And, you know, the cars are kind of minimized. So I, that to me is just such a fascinating aspect of uh, design. And then to your point of, it really depends on the city. Uh, you know, rural cities have just different frameworks of discussion here, and it just it really needs to be case by case. So I, I appreciate your context on that because it is it's so contextual, and there is, as you mentioned earlier, there's no one size fits all for this. Even though maybe there's the hope that there would be, but it's just not. <laughs> yeah. So kind of a final, maybe it's a little bit of joke, but also serious. Of uh, you know, I, I have, a lot of people know of the show Parks and Rec. Um, it's one of my favorite shows. I love that I can turn it on. I just laugh, but how, I guess two, two questions, how realistic is that as a representation of, of city council? And do you have a favorite episode of that? Uh, good question. Um, so I would say, oh, I feel like I have to be politically careful on this one. Um, I would say that there are definitely elements of Parks and Rec that feel very relevant and true to my life pretty consistently. Again, I'm not like a public sector employee. I work private sector, so it's a little different. But there is the, the part where that I come back to like in my own brain. You know, like sometimes you're, you're we're in community processes and, and people have a lot of feelings, right? Like, and again, it goes back to like, it's, it's all political. Like as soon as you start doing things in people's neighborhoods, they have feelings about it. And some of those feelings like warrant a lot of attention and warrant a lot of consideration. And some of those feelings, like people just want to come and like, they want you to know that they're upset. And like, ultimately sometimes there's not a lot you can do about it. Um, so to that sense, there's all the, all the bits in parks and rec with just like public comment. Um, sometimes feel very accurate to me in the part where Leslie said, um, Oh, it's like not people being angry. It's just people caring loudly at her is like <laughs> often how I feel that I'm, sometimes I have to like repeat that in my brain um, in certain events where I'm just like, you know what? People are just caring very loudly and it is just my job to like be the vessel for this information. So that feels, that feels very true to life. And in terms of city council, like, yeah, like there's always going to be political shenanigans, especially in smaller towns that are happening. So that also feels relevant in its own way, but it's also, um, I'll like grandstand for one second and just say that I think there's a really interesting disparity in the United States too over how our city councils are run, where some city councils in bigger cities are paid positions and some city councils like here in Eugene are not. And that like drastically dictates how well people can do their job because like essentially some city councilors are volunteers in some cities in some cities, like it's their full-time job. And like, it's kind of wild when you think about it, like making these huge important decisions that require a ton of like time and like expertise and like you know our volunteer like we should be paying i i'm just grandstanding that i feel like we should be paying every city councilor in america if we want to entrust them to make good decisions but so that being said that's an interesting thing i also think about but then oh favorite episode is probably (laughs) 
God, it's so hard to pick. Honestly, I, I keep coming back to the one where, and I don't even mean it because of our current situation, but that uh, when everyone gets the flu and Leslie has to go and give the Chamber of Commerce speech, I think, and she's like delusional going in and like goes in and gives this amazing speech for like 20 minutes and nails it and then like walks out and essentially collapses. Um, that entire episode is just so hilarious. But yeah, I mean, I think I tell everybody, I, I usually introduce it when I'm like talking about my job where I'm like, oh, have you seen Parks and Rec? And then that like usually gives people like an in where they're like, oh, okay, now I like kind of understand like what you even do. So yeah, well, Kelsey, all very pertinent and relevant to the whole SDG framework. I, I've greatly enjoyed this discussion and look forward to learning more and seeing what's next for you as it pertains to those urban planning, city planning, and, and SDG work. So thank you for your time today, and then uh, we'll look forward to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks. You too. Thank you. I really appreciated Kelsey's fire and passion for urban planning. While I'm also a geography buff, I can appreciate all those different things that many people take for granted that tie into this SDG discussion, whether it's looking at how we use land for public transport, for housing, for regular transit, and the goal of eliminating cars. Those are all things that set the framework for everything else as it pertains to many of these other SDGs. So I hope this discussion around urban planning and how it ties into many other frameworks for all the other SDGs gets you thinking about the space around you. Probably one of the big things that I think is really important is just the concept of verbiage and language. Policy is important. The verbiage in those policy important is important. So think about the verbiage as it pertains to whatever standard or policy that you're working on or something that you can influence from a state, local, or federal standpoint. Keep listening. Keep asking questions. And I love all the SDG talking going on. Much love. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash and United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.